So welcome to class. Um, we're going to review a little bit today. There's a, a handout going around that looks like this. Hopefully you can see one. We asked couples if they could share just to make sure we had enough, enough copies. Um, so make sure you get one of those. My job is to sort of, I'm the warm-up act, I guess, for the, for the class, <laughs> not the serious one. But um, today we thought it might be useful if, if I told a story. So here's a story from my days at Lipscomb. And this is a story, the reason I'm telling this story is because we're going to be talking a lot about Scripture today and how, uh, how we, where we look for truth and how we look at Scripture. So here's my story. Once upon a time I was a freshman at Lipscomb. Um, and it was in the summer of 1974, so that was a long time ago. Only Jim Thomas probably was, he was teaching there. Um, and I was in Bible class. And uh, McFarland, there was about 60 students. It was hot. We were all tired. I was fortunate that, that the teacher for that class was one of the famous, famous gospel preachers. We used, to, we used to brag at Lipscomb about having Bible teachers who were also the famous preachers in the church. Um, and on this particular day, it was a story of the Gospels class, Harmony of the Gospels, I think we called it. And the passage we were studying was the wedding at Cana, the wedding at Cana. Now, it helps to remember that this was 1974. And back in those days, remember that the Church of Christ was an absolute teetotaling uh, denomination, non-denomination. Remember that? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, just realize that's what the public base well, publicly, officially, I we were. I that it was a lot different then than it is now. Yeah, you're probably an actual, right, Elton. We're just a little more honest, maybe. But um, as the story went on, and the day got long, I was sitting way in the back, of course, but there was a student down front who was probably as tired as I was. And at one point he raised his hand and said, um, Dr. So-and-so, do you think Jesus actually made alcoholic wine at the wedding? And the... Uh, the famous gospel preacher smiled benevolently and said, oh, oh, most surely not. Um, it was probably uh, a, a drink that was sweet and fruitish and blah, 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 blah. And the student said, well, is it, do they use a different word in Scripture for what Jesus made? And the preacher said, well, uh, no, the word says wine, but some scholars have suggested blah, 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 blah. And the student said, well, why didn't we use a different word in the translation if what he made wasn't real wine? And the professor said, well, um, some scholars have suggested blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and the student said, well, doctor, you, you get the point. Well, doctor so-and-so, is there any other word used in the scriptures for that other kind of wine? And the famous gospel preacher blew his top at that moment and said, young man, I don't know. I don't know what Jesus made at the wedding at Cana, but I know that my Jesus would never have made beverage alcohol. <laughs> Class is over for the day. <laughs> and I tell this story because it's kind of funny if you grew up like I did or if you went to school where I did. But I also tell that story because on that day, that's one of the days when I remember in my life some cracks opened up in terms of what I realized about the way I had been raised. And I realized you can't say that. You, you, you can't have your own Jesus and claim to be the kind of Christians we were claiming to be. 
you can't have a high respect, a high respect for what Scripture says, and then think that. And, and, and but have your own interpretation. It kind of violated everything I thought we were about. And that's the, the day I, I remember thinking to myself, I'm going to have to think about that. Because if you can have my Jesus, you can have my Scripture. And I tell that story because today we're going to be talking about how we make decisions about Scripture. Now, in the example I gave, it was pretty clear what Scripture said. The problem was, it didn't fit with what we all believed. It should have said. But we also know there are those times in Scripture where it's, it's not clear exactly what it might mean. We also believe we know what it should mean, but we don't even have something that clear in Scripture. So the question for us, as people who take Scripture seriously, because we believe it is the inspired Word of God, how do we going about making those difficult decisions about our faith? So I hope that, that helps a little bit. I'll hand it off to you. Okay, so um, I'm the one who made this handout. Now, uh, I don't want us to look too closely at it just yet, but just kind of have it handy for reference. And we have a couple extras up here if someone needs one, so feel free to just come grab one. Um, but what I want to do is say a bit more about how Scripture functions in relation to these other sources of faith claims that we looked at last week. Because uh, what I wouldn't want you all to hear me saying, or any of us saying, is that because we're always reading Scripture in light of tradition, reason, and experience, that somehow Scripture is less important, less authoritative. That's not it. But it complicates what we mean by saying Scripture means this. A little bit. At least makes it a little more complicated. So um, what I want us to think about, first of all, is that... Uh, it's interesting when you think about where did scripture come from so look at that first point in the tradition box there were Christians before there was a New Testament most of us think about that sort of thing but some of us don't like to think about that too much because that makes it mm, harder to know where the text came from oh did it come from people did it come from the spirit well we're saying the spirit works through people to produce the text and we believe that to be the case uh, but what was happening in that community of people is that they were using reason and tradition to reflect upon their experience of salvation in light of the proclamation of who Jesus Christ is and the Holy Spirit in their midst. And in light of that long process over time, they produced this text that we call scripture. Um, they preserved, so I've got that outlined there in those points. Uh, number one, they're guided by the Spirit and we, we're affirming that. We believe that's what happened. They recognize the foundational and fixed. Okay, so it's, clo it's a closed canon. I can say more about that in a little bit. They recognize the fixed nature of the apostles' witness to two things. One, the acts of God in Jesus of Nazareth as fulfilling Israel's history. So that's why we preserve the Hebrew scriptures, right? And two, the meaning of those acts for the believing community. That's why... Uh, all the texts that come after the Gospels in our, in our New Testament are so important. 
Okay, so then the second point there, they preserve those apostolic documents, which we now call the New Testament, in conjunction with the Hebrew Bible, which we call the Old Testament, as a binding witness to God's acts of revelation. And what we're doing now is reapplying the same theology that we find in Scripture. So what the Bible's doing, I have there in point three, it's reporting events wherein God is acting, it's interpreting those, and Josh is going to say a little bit about that, and applying that interpretation. So you find this in Scripture all the time. It's not just a report. It's always a theological report for what God is up to. So um, when we say we apply Scripture, quote-unquote, what we're actually saying is we work to read the theology we find in Scripture and apply it to our situation. So there's an interpretive process happening all the time. And so what I'm saying is we're doing it in light of our tradition, our experience, and our reason. Now, there are different Christian groups that emphasize those different categories in different ways. So all Christians, all theologians are going to say they're reading in light of Scripture. Okay, They're reading their experience and interpreting, doing theology. But some are going to place a higher primacy on tradition than we do. So you think about Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, they have a very high view of tradition. They see it as almost equal to scripture, but not quite. And they are going to say, they're going to go back to that point that the church produced the text. So that's, their, that's where they go back to. Okay, um, in some of the what we might call charismatic traditions, there's a heavy emphasis placed on experience. The experience of the Spirit's guidance, for example. So there's this uh, real openness to people receiving a word from the Spirit and it being authoritative for the community, more so than we do. We don't, we don't really do that sort of thing, although we have some avenues of that. And then reason, um, you know, traditionally some of the liberal Protestant tra- uh, groups have been sort of categorized as placing a heavy emphasis on reason, although you could also say they place a heavy emphasis on spiritual experience in some regard. Uh, But what we know, because we're good at critiquing each other, but not so good at critiquing ourselves, we like to say, oh, well, tradition becomes a blind spot for the Catholics, right? Um, Charismatic experience becomes a blind spot for the Charismatics. Reason, this emphasis on learning, becomes a blind spot for the liberals. But what's our blind spot? Well, it comes when we think we're reading the text as it is simply that the reasoning is clear, that we're reading free of tradition, and that our experience, if it doesn't affirm what we've been taught, we just dismiss it. So these can become blind spots for us, but they don't have to. So what we're saying today, what we're gonna be kind of talking about all this entire time we're in this class, is how these things can be in a kind of conversation with each other that recognizes that you're making decisions as you read the text. But you don't have to do that um, in a way that disrespects the norms of the text. So that's what we're going to be looking at, is these theological norms. And then um, a point that I really wanted to make is that I think the difference between fundamentalism and faithfulness is when we recognize that we make these decisions, and then we attempt to do so with humility, with prayerfulness, and with the desire to honor God rather than to feel secure in what we've been doing. Uh, so, uh, a quick example, let's see, what time do 
Okay, a quick example of how Christians used all of these categories to make sense of an important teaching is the, the doctrine of the Trinity. So uh, let's think about this in terms of the, the quadrilateral. Tradition, reason, and experience. Okay, so what's going on? Uh, why did they develop the doctrine of the Trinity? Well, first of all, they're reading the Old Testament of Scripture. So here you have. I'm going to be my scribe. Yeah, I'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so they're reading a... <laughs> He's so good. He's so good. Um, so they're reading the Old Testament as scripture, and because of that, they're affirming the monotheistic God. God is one. Okay? That's an essential aspect of the, uh, the faith of Israel. Okay, but they're also inheriting a new tradition, a kind of new type of teaching, because that's what we're saying about tradition. All teaching is a kind of tradition passing down a certain angle on the faith. So they're, they're reading the Hebrew scriptures about God being one. They're also inheriting this new proclamation about Jesus Christ being the Son of God, being divine in some sense. They're not sure what that means quite yet, okay? But they know this person saves us from our sins. And they're also thinking about the apostles' uh, testimony to the fact that, for example, when Christ was baptized... The Father blessed him, and the Spirit descended, and there is this triune thing happening, okay? There's these three persons present in that moment. And they're thinking about the Spirit that's filled them since Pentecost, okay? So they're being baptized as a mode of salvation as well. So all that's this new tradition they've inherited. Then in their experience, in the experiences of baptism, of prayer and worship, they're perceiving the mediating work of Christ and the indwelling work of the Spirit. And both of those they perceive as doing the work of recreation. Salvation is recreation. Okay? Resurrection, renewal, new life. So they're <coughs> reflecting upon all this with their reason. Together, they're getting together and having these councils, right? They're reasoning that the work of salvation can be no less than the work of creation because if it's recreation the one responsible for creation is the one responsible for recreation so uh, Christ cannot be less divine than the father if the father's the one we're saying if the father's the one who was present in the beginning who created the heavens and the earth the one we call the son has to be the same sort of divinity and the spirit because they're both responsible for this recreating work in us so they're wrestling with what this means. Does that mean we're worshiping a demigod? Does that mean we're tritheistic? We want to affirm that we are monotheistic because this is the faith we've inherited. So they get together and they come up with this doctrine that we now call the Trinity. At the Second Ecumenical Council of Constantinople in 381, they agreed that what it means to be God <coughs> means something like one divine nature and three persons or relations. They don't really, they're not trying to be too specific about what that means. They just know there are three somethings in God that can't be reduced to one another. 
that are something more like a dance of intimate love and communion than like three separate beings. And so you see how the doctrine of the Trinity, which we all affirm pretty much. I mean, again, I always, I laugh because I think Otter Creek, you never know. You never know what (laughs) people are running. But I would say most of us in this room would say we believe in a Trinitarian God. Uh, So you see how all of this is at play in coming to that that teaching. Okay. Can I make one more comment? Yeah. yeah. So I'm going to add one step to what Lauren suggested, and I think she's going to agree with me. I I drew this kind of in a circle to show how how we worked our way to an, a rational understanding of something that's really difficult to understand, and we call it the Trinity. So what happens when we complete the circle is we go back to Scripture, right, and we start looking for the word Trinity. If you have your names, Topical Bible, or your index, and your KJV, you're, you're not ever going to find the word Trinity in Scripture. But we know it's supposed to be there somewhere. But what we do then is, is based on what we've come to understand, we're going to read Scripture now, not, not purely for what the words say on the page. We've come to understand something about God, starting with Scripture, working our way through tradition and our experience, the experience of others and the apostles, using our own brains to try to make sense of that experience. And we've come back to Scripture now with a deeper understanding of what we think it means, even though we can't find that word scripture in there, that's how the, the herm, is it a hermeneutic circle? I guess. Yeah. That's, not, yeah, that's, that's yeah. what the, they sometimes mean by a hermeneutic circle, fancy word. It just means we've thought our way all the way back around the circle so that when we come back to scripture, now we see what it means. The issue is, remember my beverage alcohol example? It works, it can cut both ways. We can decide what we think it ought to mean but if it's not based on good steps well, from the yeah. other quadrants, then we might wind up at Scripture trying to make it say something perhaps it might not have said. So that's, a, yeah. that's the difficult part about interpretation. Sorry, that's my experience. No, that's great. That's very helpful. And it reminds me that I need to emphasize these points because Matt's right that if we're not doing this well, we're going to be imposing something on the text that it doesn't actually say. And that puts us in a dangerous place. So a couple of things I'd want to emphasize in these other blocks that I've given you on this handout is that, let's look at point three in the tradition. The Christian theological tradition ideally functions as a composite of wisdom, okay? Wisdom for discerning the truths of the witness of Scripture and the task of discipleship. So I would not say that we're bound to the, to the teaching tradition, okay? I think it's good to always... One thing I value about our specific Church of Christ heritage is that we take seriously each person's responsibility to test this stuff and to try to discern it for themselves. But I want to say we need to do that together rather than thinking that the Holy Spirit just drops wisdom down into our heads. Okay, um, under reason, under that block, I would want to emphasize that point one, reason by itself cannot understand God. It needs revelation. And then point three, uh, we need reason, I think, most of all to form coherent claims regarding what we encounter in special revelation, which is scripture and the person of Christ. So that's why, and reason is inherently a kind of a communal thing, reason together. 
And then under experience, um, experience is extremely important. I mean, everything we're doing in light of our faith is experiential and guided by the Spirit. It's how we experience the Spirit. But um, I also want to say that we do not have some kind of, uh, point three there, raw experience that's not somehow already interpreted through a cultural lens. So that's where we get into trouble, I think, is when people want to say they've experienced the Spirit without any kind of filter there. Um, And then also I want to say that point two is the most important one, I think, which is that whatever claims we're drawing from our experience needs to be tested in relation to the wider Christian witness. So again, this is the problem with people who say they're going to start the true church and they go off and do something crazy, okay, is that they have not tested it in light of the wider Christian witness. Okay, I'm over time, I think. Go ahead. All right. I might need that board. Vanna White, if you'll clear the board for me. Uh, Does that make sense? I can erase everything I just wrote. Um, So I'm going to try to to think about how we we might do this currently uh, in two different ways and how the church might have done this uh, to get us thinking why this is a beneficial model. Not like you've got to do this, uh, but it can be a a wise practice. Um, My experience in my own generation and in teaching uh, college students, so kind of millennials and later, the the primary quadrilateral might look something like this. You've got experience (laughs) in all four. With a little S for scripture, a little T for tradition, a little R for reason, and then even an experience of their experience. Um, and uh, the assumption uh, in this is something like, um, my experience is the primary authority. And by experience, it's not just what I've done, but, but what, what I feel in my gut. This kind of instinctive, this is right and this is wrong. Um, and there is a place for some of that. Uh, but... One of the problems with making experience or your gut instinct the primary authority uh, is that scripture, tradition, and reason uh, then only kind of function as an echo chamber. They just tell you what you already hear or you filter out what you don't think fits that. Uh, And so you leave yourself unable to be challenged, uh, unable to hear a distinctive (coughs) voice. Um, It's also uh, problematic from a larger Christian perspective because we believe that part of uh, the influence of sin is that not only does it kind of distort our bodies and our minds, but also our instincts, our hearts. We kind of love things we shouldn't love, think things we shouldn't think, and prioritize things we shouldn't prioritize. So if we expect our gut instinct uh, to be um, inerrant, uh, then we have made an unwise move. Uh, so we need to bring that instinct into check with some other voices. Now, again, my experience is that the standard, not everyone, everywhere, but the standard quadrilateral of evangelicals and maybe Church of Christ looks something like this. Scripture can be isolated from, I did lowercase letters here, from the less important things like tradition, reason, and experience. That is, we can just pop right into scripture and find answers to anything we need. 
It's all right there. All you got to do is flip open your Bible if you have a concordance. You're 10 steps ahead of everybody else. Um, so you have a question. You find the right verse. Proof text it. Boom. You're done. Uh, and the assumption here is that Scripture is clear on all matters for all honest, right-thinking people. And so if it's not clear to you, that's because you've got some sort of bias. Me, on the other hand, it's clear to me because I'm not coming in with any sort of bias. Uh, and so um, there is a danger here, one, of just being uh, unaware of, of the historical situation of how many people claim that and it continues to lead to division in the church. There can be a kind of pride, assuming that uh, me and my Bible uh, is all I need and I don't need to listen to the witness of Christians who have gone before me. Um, and so it can, it can also lead us to miss the point. Sometimes what scripture is teaching uh, authoritatively to its culture needs to be understood. Um, you need to, we need to understand how those principles, same principles are authoritative, but maybe in a different way, in a different culture. Uh, so this, this isolated practice um, is maybe not the wisest, wisest way to approach um, So let me give now a few examples of how we see the church doing something like this. I want to give an example from the New Testament, from the early church, and from the later church. I'm not here arguing that um, Peter and Paul sit down and get out the quadrilateral and work through this. Um, but rather, this is a way of kind of mapping or modeling what seems to be the instinctual moves or the, the practices they're doing uh, so that we can say, okay, we in this class are not just trying to turn you all into Methodists doing the Wesleyan quadrilateral, but rather the quadrilateral represents something that the church has been doing throughout, and maybe we have something to learn from this um, within our tradition. So, Acts 15. Um, the, the movement, the Christian movement, has been largely a Jewish movement. You have the Messiah, the Messiah of Israel. Uh, and, and then all of a sudden, um, the church begins to move outside of Jerusalem, uh, and, and uh, the Gentiles are um, speaking in tongues, and the question becomes, well, what are we supposed to do with these Gentiles? Do we need to make them get circumcised and keep Torah? I mean, our whole experience has been, you've got to keep Torah, and you've got to have the sign of the covenant, which is circumcision. Now that Jesus has come, do we enforce that? So they're starting with scripture. You know Torah. You know what it demands. Um, so they start up here with scripture, but um, they're bringing in, if you're following, or if you want to, to look this up later in Acts 15, they're also bringing in some tradition, the tradition of Jesus' commission. But but the Lord commissioned us to go to the Gentiles. And it'll say in verse 8, and we know God knows their hearts. So how does knowing that Jesus sent us to the Gentiles make us think about those old covenant texts? And then their experience. They're speaking in tongues. The fruit of the Spirit is present in them. How does this experience of the Spirit present in them help us understand Scripture? Again, it's not, as Lauren was, was saying, it's not, we've seen this experience, therefore we ignore those scriptures, but rather we have had this experience. Might that help us see something we may have been blind to? Or might it, might it help us uh, see something that, that maybe we've missed a little bit? Are you following this? That's an important move there. The wrong move is, this happened, therefore ignore this. This happened, scripture's wrong. 
Um, a little side note. When Paul talks to the Corinthians, they are speaking in tongues and prophesying. Paul does not say, I see that the Spirit of God is among you, therefore that guy who is sleeping with his stepmother, that must be okay, because the Spirit of God is present. Therefore you who are taking each other to court, that must be okay, because the Spirit is present among you. Instead, Paul recognizes that sometimes the Spirit is present bearing good fruit in the midst of our bad fruit as well. So, the presence of good fruit doesn't mean all the fruit is good. Um, so you have to test that. The fruit is present. What might that help us think about this? And then reason. Uh, and you see this, for instance, in verses 10 through 11, where, where Paul says, look, that was a burden we were unable to bear as Jews. Isn't it reasonable to assume that they can't bear that burden either? And so what they do, thinking through tradition and experience and reason, is not ignore Scripture, but let's go back to the Scripture. And what they say is, this is what the prophet was pointing to about a time when the Gentiles would come in. And so with those texts that exclude Gentiles, it's like they say, in light of this, we realize that a new era has come. That that text was authoritative in this old covenant era. But the scripture has told us about a new era. And that must be where we are now. Um, so start with scripture. We listen and learn. And we see how we might end with scripture. Um, a kind of parallel to what Lauren did with the Trinity. Uh, we might think of how they were trying to make sense of the divinity of Christ. Starting with scripture. And hopefully I don't botch this historically too much. But you've got some, some confusion here. All right, Arius is saying, yeah, I am reading scripture. So if we, we think of the isolated, where's my pen? Here's, here's what can happen when you've got an isolated practice of reading scripture. You've got one guy, Arius, saying, I'm just reading scripture. And scripture says that Jesus was begotten. And begotten suggests that there was a beginning point. And if there's a beginning point, that suggests that Jesus wasn't preexistent. Therefore, Scripture alone tells me that there is God who is preexistent, uncreated, and then there is the Son who was begotten and created. And Arius is going to, I mean, um, Athanasius is going to say, no, look at the prologue of John. Of John. Uh, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So it's not as though one has Scripture and the other doesn't. They're both saying, we're looking at Scripture. The problem is, sometimes scripture isn't clear, even on a fundamental matter like the divinity of Jesus. So instead of them just like proof texting each other, right, which we're really good at, um, a better approach that the church seemed to go with was to bring in something like this. What is the tradition? Well, we do have a monotheistic tradition, but we also have a tradition that, that, um, where we have been worshiping Christ as though he's a god. What does that tell us? It doesn't mean we just dump the whole monotheistic thing. We still hold on to that. It doesn't mean we just dump what we learned in, the, in, in John and, uh, and elsewhere. But it, it makes us think, okay, we've got to nuance this a little bit, or we've got to think critically about this. Our experience. Our experience is that after what Jesus has done, we are experiencing a new wave of the Spirit, which suggests something about who Jesus is and what he's accomplished. How does that make us think about the divinity of Christ in those verses in Luke that seem to be in contrast to verses in John? What does reason tell us? And here Athanasius will say something like, if Jesus wasn't divine, would that have brought salvation? Could a creature have done uh, for us, for creatures, uh, what uh, creatures haven't been able to accomplish for themselves? Isn't it reasonable to think that maybe he needs to be divine? 
And so what do they do? Here's what they don't do. They don't say, therefore, we're going to say yes to John's prologue and no to the text about the begottenness of Jesus. Instead, they're going to say, we're going to do something complex here and realize that it's a both and. There is a sense in which Jesus is fully divine and yet somehow distinct from the Father. He is uncreated yet begotten. Um, and, and what they find then is that is the best way to faithfully read all of Scripture. Um, so, making these kinds of moves. Lastly, how am I doing on time here? Am I just... All right. I think I can get this in uh, two or three more minutes. Um, the later church, I think uh, a couple hundred years ago, uh, the issue of slavery shows up. Now, if you are operating here... Proof texting only. I don't need anything else but me and the Bible. You can justify slavery. Philemon is a text where Paul is writing to a slave owner. He doesn't explicitly say release your slaves. Ephesians says something about slaves. Be obedient to your masters. If you are only doing scripture uh, in kind of isolated proof text, you can say pro-slavery. And you can also take some isolated proof text and say, no, that doesn't fit. So what do you do? Do you just get in a proof texting battle? Or perhaps it's wiser to try to bring this into a larger conversation. We have these kind of competing texts. What's tradition teach us? Well, tradition, the practice of the church is mixed. There's some historical precedent for keeping slaves, some historical precedent for releasing slaves. But what about something like um, the, the larger plot line of scripture that we've inherited from tradition? And we have creation, and then you have this kind of brokenness, and you're looking for restoration, and what Christ has done. Doesn't this plot line suggest that, that the barriers that Jesus has broken down is, is pointing to a greater kind of freedom, a different kind of move? And so we're not, we're not just simply throwing away these texts, but, but if we read these closely, and if we pay attention to the whole, isn't there some sort of trajectory being pointed to here where even the system of slavery is broken down as we more and more embrace the calling of Christ. And what does experience tell us? Doesn't our experience tell us something about the full humanity and dignity of the people we're enslaving, perhaps for some? Isn't there at least some of us who our experience suggests that, that to enslave is, is just wrong? And if so, how do we then nuance those texts in Philemon and Ephesians? And what about our reasoning here? If we believe Christ died for all, that would mean he died for them. And if he died for them, does it make sense for me to enslave them? What does my reasoning say if I, am, I know a fundamental ethic is to love my neighbor as myself? Would I want to, that to be done to me? Would I want to be enslaved? Obviously not. So what do we do with these texts? And so you bring those, we bring it all back to how might we faithfully read this? And you, you realize, I think when you read this closely, that that Paul was speaking to people in a particular time and culture and place, and he is teaching them authoritatively certain principles of, uh, of living within their culture in a Christ-like way. And if you follow those principles to their logical conclusions, it leads actually to being quite a biblical thing to do to say, this practice is no longer appropriate for Christians. Um, and so rather than sticking with this isolated proof text, we do something a little more uh, robust. On Monday, I uh, mean it's Monday, I'm in teaching mode here, uh, <laughs> college teaching. Next Sunday, we're going we're gonna to do something like this as we, uh, as we get into Genesis. Uh, we're going to be thinking, uh, okay, we've got Genesis 1, and we've got the rest of the canon and how it speaks about creation. 
uh, we've got tradition telling us something about how God created, but most of those rule of faith statements don't say anything about the mechanics of creation. That is, we must believe God created, but we're not necessarily told we have to believe how or the timeline he created. What does that help us do with Genesis? Our experience in science, we've got some genetic information that the human genome has been mapped. Uh, we've got uh, age of the universe uh, issues that show up. We've got fossil evidence. How does this kind of evidence, again, not overrule scripture, but cause us to approach that and ask questions <coughs> about the nature of the text we're reading? How might we do this reasonably? If, if we reason that Genesis is a particular genre, doesn't that suggest that we need to read this genre in a particular way? Um, doesn't that suggest we need to read it uh, according to certain paradigms? If we understand that Genesis is written to a particular culture, isn't it reasonable to assume we need to listen to how it was speaking to that culture uh, and not try to make it say something it wasn't? So, we start with scripture. These help us nuance, uh, but we're always seeking to be more faithful, as faithful as we can be to the witness of scripture. Um, so that, that this is not about overruling, but helping us be even more faithful. Uh, so we, we have a very high view of scripture in case anyone's, um, in case anyone's curious, um, we just think that we can't get there um, in an isolated way. So, so what we hope you take away, <clears throat> I mean, just to pick up from what Josh said, is that it's, it's like we, we believe, because we have a high regard for Scripture, it contains God's truth. That's where the truth is. But sometimes, as the examples show, we realize, oh, it was true here, now it's true here, kind of exponentially. And, it looks different, but it's still true, but it's true broader and wider and deeper than we thought. Does that make sense? I mean, with one little simple drawing, because I think this will this will come into play um, this weekend and last week. I like this week. So imagine this is a spectrum of human beings, right? And at one end of the spectrum, which is nobody in here, we have some folks. And at the other end of the spectrum, which is nobody in here, we have some other folks. But I'm going to sketch out the ends of the spectrum. And I say that so that you know I'm not talking about you. <laughs> when it comes to the truth, at this far end of the spectrum, some people define what's true. It's simply what they believe. It's true because they believe it's true. And because they know already what the truth is, it's what they believe. Anything that challenges what they already believe is by definition false and doesn't have to be listened to, nor do I have to rethink what I believe because I already believe the truth. But you, you see what I'm saying? It's, it's true because I believe it's true. At the other, at the other end of the spectrum, I mean, you know people like this too. They're not going to believe it unless you prove to them, not just beyond a shadow of a doubt, but unless it's absolutely positivistic true and will stand up in court, they're not going to believe it. Right? In other words, they want to believe the truth, but they have a really high standard of proof. Here's the problem for both of those extremes. Here's where all of us are. <laughs> I'm going to assume, because I think it's true of most of us, we, we know that we have things we believe, and we all want to believe what's true, 
But most of us understand that we might not always know everything we'd like to know. We, we may change our mind. We want to believe what's true. Sometimes that means changing our mind. Does that make sense? So that's, I'm putting us in the middle. The problem with these extremes is these people don't change their mind. They don't compromise. And if something true comes along, they'll destroy it because it challenges what they already believe. Does that make sense? That's, that's a dangerous position. And that, that can divide churches very quickly. At the other side, you have a different danger. Right? If the standard of proof is so high, you can't believe anything. You can't believe. Faith becomes impossible. Does that make sense? This one doesn't need truth. This one can't have faith. And the danger for all of us, I would suggest, is all of us are in the middle there. And the tension that Christians live with is that tension between wanting what we already believe to be true, but also wanting to make sure that what we believe is true. And dealing with that tension makes Christian life difficult. It makes life in community difficult. This splits churches. This one dissolves faith. And so that's, that's why truth matters. That's why scripture matters, because that's where the truth is. But, but, but the truth is sometimes, as the early church shows us, and as our own everyday life shows us, sometimes difficult to discern. And trying to do it all by ourselves, or with scripture in isolation from the other squares in that cross and lavender, the other sources of truthfulness can be really dangerous. And we're getting ready to hit Genesis, which is where a lot of these questions start to surface really, really fast. We have 35 seconds for questions. (laughs) Uh, Years ago I taught uh, teenagers, and they struggled with the concept of Trinity. So I tried to make an analogy using water. You have water, liquid, you have ice, and you have steam. They're all different, but they're all the same. And that helped them try to comprehend something that we can't comprehend. That's, that's a really good example. Or even H2O. You got H2O. one thing, three separate. Yeah. Right. Other questions? Anybody's faith in danger? We need to deal with that. <laughs> one more. When you said filter, could that also be inverted as bias? Or is that two different things? Filter. What? Tell me what I said. Sorry. Tell me what I, said. I can't remember what I said. I can't find it. But I think it was in the experience of how we how we view things through our own filtering. Is that also a bias? Is that the same thing? It, it can be. I think that what's important with experience is to, again, kind of bring it into the wider conversation with other Christians, seeing what they've experienced. So if it's a common shared experience, it's more likely to be how the Spirit's working. If we think our experience is authoritative and everyone has to get on board, that becomes a dictator. Remember, she used that analogy of the lens in like the first Sunday. That's that's mm-hmm. another version of, and all these words sort of mean the same thing in progressive layers of technical difficulty, but they, they basically mean the same thing. Any other comments before we go? I'm Quadrilateral circular hermeneutics. It looks a lot, an awful lot, alike modern American constitutional 
could lay this quadrilateral over, if we took scripture out and put the Constitution yeah. there, you've got the same, the same sides, the same mm -hmm. issues, the same trends. It's, it's a problem of interpreting what we believe is true. And not, not, that, not that the Constitution, I'm not in Utah, I'm not, it's not that the Constitution is equal to the Bible. But, but the other cool thing is that this, what looks like a square is a circle. But also, the, the earliest church was doing reading scripture in the fourfold manner. You're probably familiar with that since you're, you know, an archaeologist and all. Um, so they were already doing this sort of thing from the beginning. It's just that, yeah, by the time Wesley was making use of it and kind of made it famous, this did this does map on to some Enlightenment kind of paradigms, I think. But but we're talking about an ancient practice. Yeah. All right. Thank you all. Thank you, Thank you all. very much for your patience.